This week on New Mexico in Focus, red, yellow, green. The state takes a cautious step forward out of the latest stay-at-home order. Plus, I love New Mexico. I love the idea of returning. This is not a retirement. Uh, this is just a new chapter. We talk with outgoing U.S. Senator Tom Udall about his environmental legacy and what might be next for him. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. Well, the Thanksgiving holiday is over, and now we wait for the new case counts and the possibility of reopenings. The governor has a new plan for attacking the spread of COVID, one that's more locally focused, and of course depends on all of us to make it work. We'll also talk about two more uplifting topics, the rise of women in politics and encouraging economic news with perhaps signs of more. Here's the line. Happy Friday. It is December 4th, 2020, and this is the New Mexico in Focus podcast edition for this week. I am Kevin McDonald, the executive producer, coming off the holiday weekend, and that brings a lot of changes always as we roar down to the end of the year, a year that I think many of us will be happy to see in the rearview mirror, even though we know that uh, there's still time left before we can get back to a pre-COVID existence, if there ever is such a thing. But a uh, big change this week, the governor announced it on Monday in her press conference. She hinted at it a couple weeks ago that starting on Wednesday, the state would be moving to a color-coded system depending on COVID spread rates county by county. Uh, this color-coded system is red, yellow, green, and uh, obviously designed to give local leaders a chance to and an incentive to help control the virus and then make decisions on how to reopen businesses and things based on their status. Uh, that will be updated every two weeks. So two weeks from this past Wednesday, we'll find out where things have changed. Of course, we're still waiting to see what the impact of the two-week shelter in place had, the reset in terms of our overall case numbers, but we hit a couple of really unfortunate, sad milestones this week. We became the 37th state to reach 100,000 total COVID cases. Uh, and also, we had a new high, back-to-back -back days of new highs in deaths at 40 and 44 in a day. Those are things we obviously don't uh, want to reach. Uh, it's inevitability with this surge that we've had of late. And that is why the governor did her reset, but it obviously be about another week or so before we see what that did, as well as the new color-coded system. But in for a long winter for sure. And remind everybody to get your flu shot if you haven't. Really important this year, especially. We are going to pick up the conversation, as you just heard Gene talk about in the open there, with the conversation with our line panel about the color code system. Joining us on the line this week, Regular Sophie Martin and Tom Garrity. We also welcome back Dave Mulryan of Everybody Votes. So let's kick it over to them to get their reactions on where we are right now in New Mexico with COVID. Our state has gone from being one of the nation's best at preventing COVID spread to one of its worst. Trying to get some buy-in from a more adventurous public, New Mexico has unveiled a three-tiered red to green system 
that will allow reopenings by county based on case prevalence and positivity rate. The governor spent time on Monday explaining how the new system will hopefully work. Here to talk it out is our line opinion panel. I'd like to welcome guest panelist Dave Mulryan, founder of Everybody Votes, just coming off his crazy busy season. Two of our line regulars are also with us this week. One of, them, one of them is Tom Garrity of the Garrity Group PR, and the other is attorney Sophie Martin. Thank you both for being here. Sophie, I want to start with you. What do you make of the starting of the reopenings right after Thanksgiving? Was this some strategy at work here? Well, I mean, I think uh, the shutdown before th Thanksgiving made a lot of sense in, the, in that it, you know, it gave people at least some time to rethink their Thanksgiving plans. Um, but not so much time that they sort of forget that that's something that you need to do. Um, but there is a lot of a lot of pressure in our communities to have uh, the ability to, you know, get our lives done. And so I think mm -hmm. that this is an acknowledgement of that. But it's also my sense is that it's an attempt to put in place incentives for communities to um, to take the precautions that the governor uh, has been asking us to take. Mm -hmm. uh, that there have been periods where there's been more enforcement, less enforcement. But at this point, it seems to me that communities need to be looking within the community saying, you know, who, who's doing this right? Who isn't? What can we do as a, as a community, mm -hmm. again, uh, as a region or a county? Um, to reduce the numbers for our citizens. That's a good point, Dave Mulryan, that Sophie just made. The ball's back in the courts of the count, local folks. You know, right. it's, it's a very interesting strategy. What do you make of it? Well, I think it's, a, it's an interesting strategy, but I think it's also sort of an offshoot of, I, I mean, I think it is fair to say that we've had a failure at the federal level to really guide what we should be doing for this COVID epidemic. And, you know, it has been pushed down to the state level. The governors are, you know, trying a whole array of different types of things. Some of it seems to work. I mean, New York State seems to have done very well, although they suddenly seem to have a surge. And, and I think that one of the things is that, you know, the founders said when the federal government fails, we'll push democracy to the states. And we're seeing that. Yet you, you have to wonder, can a state itself, you know, bring in these incentives? And it's one that's based on, you know, what red, green and blue. And it sort of reminds me of when we were having the terror alerts, you know, the same sort of idea. Mm -hmm. Yet we know what to do. People should wear masks. People should avoid large gatherings. And yet people seem reluctant to do that. And of course, now we've politicized it. Somehow not wearing a mask means that you're a red person and wearing a mask means you're blue. It is insane what's going on. And, and I think that the governor is, I, I wouldn't want to be the governor. I wouldn't want to have to make these decisions. But in one way, I agree that her strategy is smart because she's pushing it down to the lowest level, the county and even the mayors and saying, look, here is a way for you to, to bring caseload as low as you can. The question is, is it going to work? I mean, we have no idea and we're going to have to, we'll just have to wait and see. Time will tell. And meanwhile, point. we are out of hospital beds all over the state and all over the country. Mm -hmm. it, it's just kind of outrageous when you think about it. You know, Tom, looking back, uh, the idea of family gatherings is now, you know, pretty much understood to be the main culprit uh, for, for how COVID has spread. And, you know, we just came off a big Thanksgiving Day weekend. A lot of folks traveled and they came back and the governor was asking them to, you know, quarantine and all kinds of other things. What, what is it, your sense of how, what are you hearing about travel particularly and how people approached it? Uh, I mean, a lot of folks went on planes this past weekend. Yeah, um, you know, their travel was something that a lot of folks are, are starting to do again, some by airplane, other by car. 
Um, you know, I, I think that the timing to uh, Sophie's point from earlier that, you know, the timing of these announcements is, is orchestrated to really discourage people from traveling. Mm -hmm. I, I know that people, you know, that there were a lot of folks who traveled and a lot of folks who got together in, you know, smaller groups uh, to celebrate Thanksgiving, a lot more connecting by way of the internet through the different uh, video devices to connect with family. Mm -hmm. So I think everybody is, uh, you know, really kind of pitching into the level that they feel like that they've been impacted by the virus. I think that the red, yellow, green approach that the governor's uh, has created is good. It, it's, uh, it provides a path for different counties. There's also a lot of ambiguity. Mm -hmm. uh, two items that I just briefly want to talk about. Please. One is the, uh, um, uh, the, you know, who's in control at the county level, like in Bernalillo County. Is it Bernalillo County that's in control of, a, of enforcing or setting more uh, criteria, or is it the city of Albuquerque uh, in Roswell? Is it Roswell or Chavez County? So a lot of ambiguity there as far as what real power these local municipalities have. And then the second is um, the, the red, yellow, green timeline is every other week. And, you know, here we are, we're in the process of getting daily updates on number of infections, numbers of deaths, um, but we have to wait 14 days to find out if a county is able to come off of the red into the yellow or to the yellow to the green. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a flaw in the system that they really need to address. And they have the quick accountability. Why not apply it and reward counties or punish them account accordingly uh, if they aren't able to maintain those certain levels? Sophie, could please pick up on that. Tom makes an interesting point. I mean, on Wednesday, we had two looks at the county by county map. Uh, Los mm -hmm. Alamos lost its yellow status, and they're now red, of course, and San Miguel is now yellow, but that's as we tape this. But as Tom mentioned, it's going to be another two weeks before we get more county updates. How can folks, you know, run businesses, plan events, plan, you know. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the opposite of that, please. right? Okay. Which is um, friends who are business owners, and so, of course, this is entirely anecdotal off of, off of Facebook and other social media. Mm -hmm. One of the things that they have talked about struggling with is the lack of predictability. This two week period at least gives both both residents and businesses this this kind of like, okay, so we at least have two weeks to work with to plan. It's not every day there could be a change every three or five days or whatever it is. We, we have this horizon where, for instance, restaurants can say, well, we anticipate we're going to be this way for two weeks. We can make plans about staffing and purchasing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, parents can sort of can say, OK, for two weeks, we're not in full lockdown. We're in red. So I can make plans for this next two weeks, as opposed to having that kind of whipsaw um, situation, which I think in, in many ways might be more challenging. Meaning if going yellow, red, yellow, red day by day is worse than I, I think so. I see your point. Yeah. Dave, pick up on that as, as well. It, it's a challenge. Sean makes a good point here and Sophie amplified it. It's, it's a very difficult challenge to make planning uh, work and how, is there a better right. way? Well, I mean, I'm not sure there's a better way. All I can tell you is that I, for example, stayed closed because, you know, you don't want to get the reputation for like, oh, I went to this place and I got COVID. Mm -hmm. That to me seems very destructive to whatever brand or business you have long term. But I was lucky in that I didn't have a huge staff. So, you know, I could plan that way. But I think that what Sophie is pointing out, the uncertainty, we are trying to fly a 747 with no radar. We're right. in the clouds. There's a mountain ahead of us. We don't know. It's like air 
airport 75, you know? And, and so I think that, you know, the governor and the politicians, I mean, really, who do we listen to? I mean, do we listen to the mayor? Does the mayor of Roswell tell us like what they're doing? Does the mayor of Albuquerque tell us? I think that the delineation of who is in power and authority here is unclear and they should clear that up. And again, it goes back to very basic things that Tom and I both work for. What is communicating? How are you communicating? And what is it that you are communicating? Mm -hmm. Because people tend to follow when they have a good leader. I'm just not sure we're getting the leadership that we need. And it's very what's, unclear. What's, what's missing in your view in the leadership? right now i think what's missing is a clear strategy mm -hmm. i think that you know people seem to be fumbling around a bit and you know the red yellow green is okay but like all of the points that we just made how do we decide you know if you're a restaurant order how do you order food for if you don't know what's coming up for two weeks i mean you know and and when you look at like a couple of walmarts were closed and i was thinking how much perishables do they have to get rid of when you mm -hmm. start doing that kind of thing so mm -hmm. i mean again the unknown knowns to quote the great Donald Rumsfeld are what's killing everyone. <laughs> wow. I was not quite ready for that person being quoted. <laughs> Airport 75, Donald Rumsfeld. Yeah, I mean, quite a God. combination of references. <laughs> well done. Let's talk about, let's talk about uh, vaccines here real quick. Tom, I'll start with you. Uh, you know, we've got a hearing next, was it next week, I believe, next Friday in the U.S. in uh, the Moderna vaccine has its FDA hearing. The U.K. is pressing ahead quickly. I, I, the psychology of the uh, vaccine, it, it, what's your sense of how people are taking this? Meaning it's, it's, you know, potential side effects, fear, all those things. Is that being managed in your view as you see this rollout starting to, starting to happen? Well, you know, uh, it, it, it's being managed, whether it's being managed well is a whole other uh, discussion. Good point. Uh, you know, to Dave's point from earlier, you know, you, you know, we trust those who are closest to us. So, um, you know, you have the feds who are basically managing this approval process for vaccines. Mm -hmm. We have at least three different vaccines that I've uh, been keeping track of. Um, but, uh, you know, so all of a sudden becomes a branding you know, issue, you know, do you like, you know, product X or product right. Y and what does, uh, you know, your local governor or your local mayor or your local congressperson has to say about that. So I think that there's a lot of room for improvement of just saying, going through the process of what was tested, how were these tested? What's the, you know, what are the side effects? And if, if you have transparency, you'll have people build trust a lot quicker. Mm -hmm. And I just don't see a whole lot of transparency. I see a lot of product, but not a lot of uh, insight as far as how they got from point A to point B. Yeah. Sophie, it's going to be a tough one. I mean, a lot of folks who are out there publicly saying they're just not going to take it. They don't trust these kind well, of things at all. Allow, allow me to say now on New Mexico PBS that I join the three former presidents in saying that if somebody wants to broadcast me getting my COVID vaccine on TV, I'm in. Right. Um, yeah. You know, there, there. We have seen over the last couple of decades an increase in the U.S. in um, vaccination. Um, so I'll delicately call it uncertainty. People right. who um, who have followed, unfortunately, in a number of cases, uh, some very bad science in this area. We've seen an increase in dangerous diseases that we thought that we had overcome mm -hmm. because of that hesitancy. And this is going to be a, a big, this is going to be a big thing for us. I mean, we have 
um, states and the federal government really thinking about, does this become mandatory? School systems are having to think about, do we make this a mandatory vaccination situation? Um, it is uh, it is a minefield. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, at the same time now, we have people who who are saying, no, but I, but I want it. How quickly can I get it? Right. And I think that, that tension there, um, we hope to get some resolution in that question relatively soon. That decision is largely up to the states, although the CDC has obviously some, some input into it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, here in New Mexico, the expectation is that, is that health workers will start. Exactly right. Plus, fact, you're in, we have a transition in regimes, you know, all going to make it more complicated. We're out of time on COVID right now. Tom Udall is next. And then this group is back to talk women in politics. The days are counting down in 2020. They're also counting down for U.S. Senator Tom Udall. He announced his retirement last year, so he's nearing the end of uh, illustrious, at least as far as we know it, elected uh, public official career uh, that ended with him in the U.S. Senate for the last uh, decade plus. And uh, we wanted to do an exit interview. We often like to do this without going politicians of his stature. And we thought nobody better to do that than Laura Paskus, our Arland correspondent. Of course, she covers climate change, environmental issues, every month here on New Mexico in Focus, as well as lots of other outlets as well. You can find her work a lot of places. And uh, those have been primary focuses of Senator Udall throughout his tenure in the Senate, environmental issues and climate change. So we want to bring you that interview, and we also want to let you know uh, that Laura talked to him about another project we have here at New Mexico PBS called Groundwater War, which is looking at PFAS contamination at uh, military bases here in New Mexico. There have been five military installations that have now been identified as um, spots where groundwater has been contaminated by these PFAS chemicals. It's a whole family of chemicals, but in particular around these bases, they're tied to aqueous foam that was used in firefighting training, and um, they are, are serious chemicals in that they don't break down, so they're really hard to clean up. You can read all of Laura's work on Groundwater War on our website. Just go to NewMexicoPBS.org and look for the link to Groundwater War. And uh, we've also been putting together some really great short video explainers. It's a complicated issue. New Mexico's military history is also super complicated as well. We're trying to break that down into some easily digestible videos. So we encourage you to go watch those. You'll look for the PFAS Watch tab. Anyway, getting back to where I started, we will bring you her conversation with Senator Udall about PFAS, as well as this week we also talked to Representative Deb Holland on that same issue. We'll bring you those in the coming weeks as well. But right now, here is Laura Paskus and her exit interview with Senator Tom Udall. Senator Udall, thank you so much for being with us today. You have been such a leader on environmental and climate issues over the years. So we wanted to check in with you at the end of the Trump administration, looking ahead to the Biden administration. Of all of the policies that the Trump administration has enacted or rolled back over the last four years, which do you think will have the longest term or most serious impacts on New Mexico's waters, landscapes, and communities? You bet. Well, that's that's an excellent question. And, and the thing people should know and understand is uh, 
we face a really, really serious climate crisis, global warming, uh, and it's extraordinarily uh, difficult and tough. Uh, one of the things I know that's changed just since I've been in the Congress is people are seeing this around them in their daily lives, whether it's extreme events, weather events, drought, uh, a number of kinds of uh, impacts are being felt and people can look around and say, you know, that's the climate. That's, that's the change in the climate. So knowing that we have that big issue, the thing we need to know is that the United States needs to be at the table with other countries around the world. After the Paris Agreement in the Obama administration, we really had stepped up to the plate. We had some great goals. Uh, we withdrew from that agreement under President Trump. We had a very strong administrative clean power plan uh, out of the Environmental Protection Agency. That has been dismantled. Uh, there was a, a really strong, wonderful agreement on CAFE standards. Those are the uh, automobile mileage standards. It was up to 54 miles a gallon. They were going for the auto companies and were going to do even better. So we had, and there were many other things that were appliance uh, regulations and standards and and uh, some very strong things moving us in the right direction. One of the things also that I pushed for was a renewable electricity standard which has been adopted in almost 30 states in the United States. So take all that progress and then uh, imagine the uh, Trump administration, the Secretary of Interior, the EPA director uh, taking a wrecking ball to all of that. Uh, that's where we are, and it's really unfortunate to me that we've seen that step back, uh, especially when you have the Chinese and the Indians and the other really big countries uh, staying at the table, determining the rules, uh, and the reason they do that is they want to get the economic benefits. We all know that a green, uh, clean energy economy is all about jobs of the future. And those jobs are growing dramatically uh, compared to some of the other jobs in the energy area. And, and it's really important for the United States of America to be a part in that economic growth. So I, what I see happening in this new administration coming, coming in is really uh, getting back to the table and reversing all the things uh, that set us back. Uh, and then we have a new proposal called 30 by 30, saving 30% of the land and waters uh, by 2030, which is a part of the Biden-Harris plank. It's in the Democratic platform. Uh, I've been working on that for almost a year uh, with uh, groups all over the West uh, to make sure that, that uh, uh, people felt uh, that uh, this was something they could do at the local level, it could be done at the state level and also at the federal level, and make a real contribution on climate, on the extinction crisis, and on saving nature. So one of the things that I think people are a little bit concerned about is there will be legal challenges to lots of these actions by the Trump administration, but the courts are so full of Trump-era judges and nominees. Are you concerned about that at all? How will, how will the courts hold up against these challenges? Yeah, I, I, I am concerned about that, but in the climate area, there has already been a court ruling. The 
crucial finding, the absolute crucial finding here is that carbon pollution is a threat to public health. And that is a ruling under the Clean Air Act. Uh, this was done by uh, judges who were in all sorts of Democrat and Republican administrations. So that sets the groundwork to move forward under the Clean Air Act uh, and to really move us to tackling climate change and global warming. So we've known about climate change for six decades now and we just lost another four years. Um, you mentioned the 30 by 30 proposal. What else does the Biden administration need to jump on immediately in January? I, I don't think there's any doubt they need to rejoin the Paris Agreement. The meetings that take place uh, before the big annual five-year meetings, uh, we need, be, need to be at the table. So we need to get a Secretary of State approved who can start uh, getting people within the State Department up and running to get out there and participate in those meetings. I think we have to restore uh, the uh, targets in terms of getting better and better, better mileage with gasoline in our automobiles. And, and I think uh, you're going to see the Biden administration really push electric cars. I think that's one way uh, that people can really make a contribution is buying an electric car. And you know, many people now are actually putting solar panels on their roof and then charging their car. So that's a car driven by the sun rather than by being driven by uh, fossil fuels and non-renewable uh, fuels. Right. So there's lots of speculation about the Biden administration and your name has come up repeatedly as a possible Secretary of the Interior. I know you want to come home to New Mexico, but um, can you address those rumors at all? Oh, sure. I, I, uh, I know that my name is in on the list, the top list that uh, is there. Uh, I, I uh, uh, haven't been uh, really in that much uh, contact with them, uh, but I would be honored uh, to serve in a Biden administration. I don't know who wouldn't be honored to serve in the cabinet when uh, you have the kind of experience in terms of public lands and and uh, dealing with uh, climate change and the extinction crisis, all are what you're a big part of interior. Uh, but I, I, uh, uh, I, th I really, I've known Joe Biden. I've known his family for a long time. I campaigned for him in 1972. I worked in his office before I went to law school in 1973. Uh, I've stayed in touch with him ever since. He's been a real mentor to me. And so I just want to do what's right by Joe and by Kamala. Uh, if they need my help, uh, I'm happy to, uh, uh, to weigh in and, and be a part of their administration. I, as you said, though, I love New Mexico. I love the idea of returning. This is not a retirement. Uh, this is just a new chapter in my public service. And so I hope to be doing many things in New Mexico and working on uh, Native American issues, on climate issues, on conservation, on, on even working on moving the bills, some of which haven't passed yet that uh, I, I've been working on, like the uh, uh, protection of the Gila River with wild and scenic protection, which I think you know a lot about. 
So certainly you, you definitely have been a leader on environmental and tribal issues. I'm curious also if there are any lessons you might have learned from your father, Stuart Udall, about what makes a good Secretary of the Interior and, and why that service is important. Yeah, well, he was, a, he was a visionary, my father, and he combined the big vision with doing. And a good example of that is, uh, I remember when he was Secretary of Interior, he flew over in a uh, Bureau of Recreation, Bureau of uh, Reclamation, the, you know, the dam building, uh, and he was the, with the director of the Bureau of Reclamation, and he pointed out they were flying over southern Utah, and Floyd Dominey said, that's where the next big dam's going to be built. It's going to be a really good one, Stuart. My father looked down and saw these towering spires and beautiful country, and he said that should be a new national park. And he went back and uh, helped create Canyonlands National Park, uh, which has been a, a real success. Uh, when it was kicked off as a new national park, people came from all over the world. It's had a big economic impact in the local communities. Uh, and that's the kind of vision he had. And, and then on top of that, he was a doer. Uh, the other thing uh, that was really terrific in his administration is how do you get uh, the land and the waters protected and how do you create a fund to do that? And so he was at the, the creation of the Land and Water Conservation Fund uh, to take uh, revenues from offshore oil and commit it uh, to uh, a renewable, uh, long-lasting uh, program where parks and, and uh, recreation areas and, and a variety of other areas could be preserved for future generations. So that, that was pretty amazing. And we, this year, uh, following in that tradition, uh, put in permanent full funding of the Land and Water Conservation Fund. So every year from now on, there will be dedicated $900 million uh, to conservation and the Land and Water Conservation Fund. So I'm, I'm very excited about that. In addition, that was called the Great American Outdoors Act. Another provision of that dealt with uh, back logs in the maintenance at the national parks. And so what happened there is uh, uh, we put in $10 billion uh, to make sure that we start dealing with the backlogs on the maintenance of the national parks. In a sense, we're kind of loving those national parks to death. We need to get that infrastructure up so we can protect the parks and so there can be a great visitor experience. And so as I understand it, Secretary Bernhardt, the current Interior Secretary uh, did not nominate projects for funding this year. Is that right? And can that be rectified or what is the, the problem there? Well, I, I think that uh, the, the Secretary has been very s slow to move on this. Uh, he only has, I think, you know, a couple of months left. Uh, and the Biden administration, uh, I would assume, is, is uh, going to take the direction of Congress and move out and use the Land and Water Conservation Fund. But never forget, half of that fund over its history, and I'm sure that will be in the future more or less, is about 50% of those funds are spent at the local level, cities and counties, at the state level. So if they have an opportunity to create a park, do a recreation area, uh, expand a park that they already have, they can apply to the federal government and get a matching grant 
so that they can move forward with that. And, and I would just challenge anybody, if you go into some local park that you uh, like, uh, look at the plaque and you'll see uh, half the money was probably from the Land and Water Conservation Fund. And if you talk to the local people, that wouldn't have been created unless you had that matching situation and both local dollars and federal dollars were used uh, to create that park or recreation area. So I'm curious if you have any advice for soon-to-be Senator Ben Ray Lujan, especially in thinking about protecting New Mexico's land and waters. Yeah. Well, as you know, uh, Ben Ray Lujan, first of all, he, he ran a great race. Uh, he is now uh, senator for New Mexico. I will walk him down the line. He's senator-elect, really, but I'll walk him down the aisle and over to be sworn in on January 3rd. That's the tradition in the Senate. And he, he, I think, is going to represent the state very well. He's been in the House of Representatives for 12 years. Before that, he was on the Public Regulation Commission. Uh, he's smart, he's talented, he's very capable. Uh, and he's been dealing with these uh, conservation, uh, renewable energy, uh, broad uh, issues that deal with parks and public lands and wild and scenic rivers for a long time. So I, th I think he's going to be great on the conservation front, but you know the first big task that uh, this incoming administration and the new Senate is going to face is, is getting the economy back in shape and getting the pandemic under control. And we need to do the economy part safely. So we want people to go back to work, no doubt about it, but we want them to do it safely so they don't come home bring the pandemic and their grandparents or somebody in their family is injured by that. And we're, we're at a, a devastating uh, level of the pandemic right now in New Mexico and across the country. There's hardly a state that's escaping this big spike that we're seeing. So I know that's going to be Ben Ray's dedication is to work on economic development, on making sure we have a strong economy, putting people back to work, and keeping this pandemic under control. And one of the interesting things, Laura, that I think is happening here is people are finding that, that the tension and the anxiety and all of that caused by the pandemic is relieved some to get into the out of doors, to get into the parks and the recreation areas and have a little solitude and enjoyment and socially distance and, and be with a few family members. You know, not in big groups, but much smaller groups. And, and as we know, being outdoors is much safer, especially in this winter period and, and at all periods than indoors and cramped up uh, where all of that air is contained and it's, uh, it's more difficult and, and it's a little more toxic in that situation. Senator, thank you so much for thank your you. time and for your service to New Mexico. We're all very interested to see what you do next. Thank, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to the next chapter. Good. Thank you. Headed back over to the line panel now. And uh, there was a great article this week in, I believe, the Albuquerque Journal. Forgive me if I get that wrong. Uh, but it focused on... Um, women in politics, and there were several landmarks coming out of the election, um, most notably that there is now a majority of women in the New Mexico House for the first time ever. In addition, you have uh, Mimi Stewart, who is now the Senate President Pro Tem. She replaces Mary Kay Papin, so continuing 
the rise of uh, female politicians there. Uh, Mimi Stewart, obviously a well-known commodity, been serving for a lot of years. And it also follows national trends we're seeing. Lots of females involved in the Biden transition team, including our very own Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham. And we've already had some cabinet positions uh, that have gone to women. Uh, and uh, so it is uh, definitely the tides are shifting there. We wanted to talk to the line panel about what it means, what is behind it, and uh, just their other insights as well. So send it back now to Gene and the line. New Mexico's incoming House of Representatives will be mostly women. And the new president pro tem of the state Senate is Mimi Stewart, who replaces Mary Kay Papin, as a matter of fact. And on the national stage, Republican women showed strong gains among their party in the U.S. House, and President Joe Biden has nominated Janet Yellen for Secretary of the Treasury and appointed an all-female communications staff. Pretty cool there. Dave, step in on any of that, but we'd love to hear what you think is behind the rise particularly of Republican women. Let's start there. Well, you know, I, I've, I, I was really looking at those numbers and I'm thinking, you know, when, when you look at the idea of a Republican woman, now, this is an opinion and here mm -hmm. it comes. I think that, that Republican women in some ways, the, way, the reason they did so well in gaining all those seats in the, in the House of Representatives, Republicans do not automatically say, you're a woman, we're going to have you run. In some ways, they make you fight for it, and and they're kind of harsh. And you know, um, I think that you know Republicans have said, you know, they don't automatically just say, "Well, you're a woman, run for this seat." Mm -hmm. Women have had to fight for it to get there with Republicans, and I think you know, in a way, it's like muscle. It had to be built up, and it built up, and somehow it broke. The question is, you know, is a Republican woman a good candidate? Is she going to be a good politician? We're going to find out. I mean. I mean, there's no question. Mm -hmm. But I thought it was really fascinating that Republican women were the number one beneficiary of whatever it was that happened to the electorate in this election. Right. It is fascinating. We'll have to circle back on that in, in future times and talk and kind of tease that out. Yes. Uh, Sophie, interestingly, and let's bring it closer to home, the numbers for New Mexico, it, it's the House, it's really kind of startling when you think about it. You know, the kind of advantage yeah, so, that women, so it's wonderful. Women are the Mm -hmm. Women are in the majority in the House. Mm -hmm. um, we we already had the you know the past president pro tem of the Senate was was a woman Mary Kay Papin and now you know we will have a woman in that leadership role again. But mm -hmm. um, I I think that part of the the picture in terms of women in politics in New Mexico can really be ascribed to groups like Emerge New Mexico who have made a concerted effort, brought funding and expertise into bear mm -hmm. uh, to to help women develop their um, their uh, candidacies to develop the skills they need to successfully run. And, um, and, you know, we also have a history of female political leadership in this state. That's right. Um, and, and I think that this, uh, there's a, you know, there's kind of a, an old saw about um, how you need to see someone who looks like you in that position mm -hmm. in, in order to think I can have that position. And I think, my hope is that we've reached the tipping point there. Mm -hmm. Interesting point. Tom, you know Mimi Stewart well. You've worked with her. You've known her a long Senate pro tem is no small thing, and she's really earned it when you really think about it. What, what's your prediction about the coattail effect, perhaps, uh, with her ascension? 
Well, I, I think it's great. You know, obviously, you know, the vote will need to still be made That's true. Uh, Good before point the there. legislative mm -hmm. session occurs and stuff. But definitely, uh, she has the trust and uh, the faith of the Democratic caucus. And uh, and, and she's a, a very, uh, she has worked for the position and she has done a fantastic job to secure the position because she has the respect of her colleagues. And I think, you know, when we look at respect in general, I think that's really uh, will determine, you know, how the, you know, your your gender plays into, um, you know, the, you know, your role in leadership is, you know, what kind of respect do you show to others? Mm -hmm. And so I think Mimi is going to do great. I think, um, you know, if she's elected, which I think she will be, I'm not trying to sure. you know, say that she's not, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, when you look at, you know, just the, the prominence of, uh, of, you know, the female uh, women candidates uh, and, you know, the entire New Mexico congressional delegation, um, is uh, is right. all female, that's and right. so that's, that's that's fantastic. So you know, it's it's not what what I'd like to see is that this all of a sudden doesn't become a trend, and we focus more on you know, hey, this is great. We're we're all just voting for candidates now, uh, because there's a lot of fantastic, strong uh, women who are uh, who are uh, in leadership positions, and I think we're going to benefit as a result. Mm -hmm. So if, Can I, I, I jump in on that, please. Oh, yeah, I wanted to get to you right out there. Go ahead. Okay, so I just I just wanted to point out too, though, that there's been a shift. Uh, the shift that we see in Washington definitely goes by, beyond this communications team. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I've got to say, no slight to the women on this team and to women in, in public in public relations. I worked in communications for many years, mm -hmm. but public relations and communications have been seen traditionally as female jobs. There, there's even a yes. you know sort of an old the what's called the pink ghetto of public relations, where it's it's often dominated by women. Mm -hmm. But what I think is more telling about the Biden administration and the decisions that it's making, 53% of their senior transition staff are women. And that comes very close to ref reflecting the percentage of women in our population overall. 52% of all of that transition team, all that transition staff is women. More than half of the government agency review team is women. And we have women moving into, or at least, you know, that'll be nominated for really important positions in national security with ambassadorships at the treasury. Janet Yellen is expected, you know, to, to take on that role and other senior roles in the White House. And when we look at other countries and we see that there are some countries that say, you know, half of our legislators uh, have to be women or half of our board members, corporate board members have to be women. Well, the U.S. hasn't done that, mm -hmm. but here we have um, an administration that is um, really, I think, putting teeth behind its allyship mm -hmm. and showing, yeah, you know what, we can put 53% of women on this team. Why wouldn't we? Good point there. Uh, Dave, is there something that you have seen that there is a key to recruiting women for office that both parties have started to use? It's a little early days, but is, is there something you're grokking yeah. that seems well, to be the, I mean, the trend? I, I think you know, you know, I sort of am pretty clear about how I feel about this. I believe the best politician tends to win the 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 slot, you know, and, and, and the question that I keep thinking is, are these women going to change the institutions that they've been elected to or appointed to? Or are the institutions going to change these women? And we're going to find out. But I think New Mexico has a very long history of you stand up and run and, you know, you can win. I mean, you know, uh, 
Stephanie Garcia Richards. And but but I also think we need to credit people like, you know, um, you know, Mrs. Pelosi, you know, Speaker Pelosi. She has been a great politician. The fact that she's a woman, I'm guessing has had some impact. Yet she's been effective, male or female, no matter how you look at it. And I kept thinking, too, about Geraldine Ferraro when mm-hmm. she ran for vice president in 1984. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, that was a real trailblazer. And and all of this has had an impact. And, and people like Shirley Chisholm and, and Barbara Jordan, I mean, these women did it when no one was doing it. And, you know, and, and so you, you really have to go back and give them some credit, too, that they were willing to take a lot of abuse, really, was what it came down to, to stand up and run. And they did it. And, you know, but, but I think that Sophie's point about Emerge, I mean, nothing, you know, it can't hurt, right, when you say to women, like, let's, you know, get up and run. And I think we should be doing the same thing for a lot of Hispanic pop, you know, uh, potential candidates and black politicians, you know, everybody, nobody can stand up and say, I'm a politician, I'm going to run for office. There's a lot of gears to, to keep it going, to get a logo, to start a campaign, to start fundraising. And, you know, all of these are learnable skills, but right. you have to have someone that's willing to teach them to you. That's a good point there. Uh, Tom, interestingly, when you think about it, um, we, we, it's, it's, it's this entire rainbow of how women see the world, to put it frankly, just like, just like men, that once an assumed office is held, there's the possibility to have that woman's lived experience come through in her policy decisions and how she, uh, you know, the, the approaches a woman wants to take on the things she, that are important to her. And Sophie, of course, I want you to pick up on this as well, but starting with Tom, can we, could we anticipate that policy changes and how things are approached could have a serious change here when these numbers start to turn like this? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because what you're what happens is is when you have shifts, uh, it, you know, to Dave's point, as far as you know, uh, you know, if it's an uh, ethnic or a gender, uh, you know, uh, representation, you know, you're going to have a shift in perspective, mm-hmm. and that's going to impact the kind of legislation that's brought to the table, uh, and it it it, it brings a, an opportunity for things that uh, might not have been given uh, some serious consideration, some serious consideration because you have a new perspective. Mm-hmm. So. I, I think that that's the value that we have for you know New Mexico's and as well as for our country is whenever we increase the number of perspectives, uh, you know I think that we increase the ability uh, to have government literally represent more people. Good point there, Sophie. Your thought on that? Hard to argue with that. I mean, I think I think that Tom makes an excellent point that um, the increase in diversity is going to lead to an increase in perspectives, obviously, in, in uh, our government. In the, in the more immediate term, though, you know, the two dynamics that come together is the democratic political power in this state, the fact that Mary Kay Papin is no longer in office, mm-hmm. um, and the loss of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I think one bill that got held up last year, that has been held up in the past, that is, I think, almost guaranteed to pass at this point, would be the, the repeal of New Mexico's anti-abortion mm-hmm. statute, um, mm-hmm. because there, you know, you can no longer say, "Oh well, Roe v. Wade holds back that tide," and you have both a political party and representing that political party, um, a group of people who either are or have been impacted by those policies, the the nationwide and uh, attempts to limit abortion rights, sure. and so. I mean, I think that's one big area that you're going to see. But the Democrats have also brought up issues involving early childhood education again. Mm-hmm. Um, there's once again, there's hope that that issue will um, will be able to move forward. 
And uh, I expect, if nothing else, I expect an awful lot of coverage about what are the ladies doing now? Is this a ladies issue? Yes. <laughs> um, and to the extent that it's good government, mm -hmm. oh my goodness, you go. You go. Interesting point there. That's right. Hey, Dave, when you think about it, though, a 37 to 33 female to male advantage in our legislative house side, that's a block, as they say. You right. know, you can move a lot of things forward with that right. kind of right. advantage. Right. But, but I think like we have to like, let's not lose our perspective here. The number one issue that this legislative body is going to be facing is the crisis in the economy. Yep. And, you know, that isn't male or female. And, and really, we are, we are facing a disaster in terms of like, who's going to get money? Where are they going to get it? How are we going to prevent these evictions? I'm not sure that's a male-female divide. That's mm -hmm. a divide of the people who have money versus the people who don't have but, money. But Dave, there is a male-female divide that has been yeah. has been noted, and it's yes. an economic divide where women right. at Absolutely. a much higher rate are having to drop out of the workforce That's to right. take well, their jobs. But and also, you know, we can look and we can see, will these these women say, you know, women ha are traditionally still underpaid. I think it's now 73 cents on the dollar. So if we can move those things to the forefront, I think that benefits everyone. You know, mm -hmm. there's no question that we need to do it. But the number one issue that's going to be facing this legislature, male, female, in between, is going to be how are we going to salvage this economy and make sure that we don't have a wave of evictions and we have people going broke because that that's going to be the number one thing. And if women are better at that, then good, because boy, we need it. There's no question about it. Good thoughts from everyone there. We're taking a quick break and then we're back talking good news about the economy. Got one more line panel for you before we wrap up this week, but want to make you aware of a great Facebook Live that happened earlier today on Friday. Uh, Gene Grant, he sat down with Santa Fe lawyer Eric Sorotkin. Uh, this is something that Gene has been talking about to us here internally for a while, and I think it's a fascinating conversation that really stems out of the pulling down of the obelisk monument in the Santa Fe Plaza. That's a story we've been definitely covering here for several months now. There were protests around the history of that monument, especially amongst Native American communities, and it leads into the larger conversation about just our controversial monuments and statues that we have here in New Mexico. Uh, Mayor Weber of Santa Fe had uh, talked about coming up with a commission to look at what to do with that monument, but that dragged on long enough that folks on Native American Indigenous Peoples Day took matters into their own hands. There are now charges filed there. It turns out that Eric Sorotkin, who you're going to hear from in that Facebook Live, actually represents one of the people that was arrested in that whole situation. But he has a fascinating history and was involved in post-apartheid movement in South Africa when there were peace commissions brought together days and days, hours upon hours of people uh, just addressing uh, the complicated history there in South Africa. This included uh, people who were um, abusers and people that did uh, really horrible things during apartheid uh, coming forward to talk about exactly what they did under the promise that they would uh, not face criminal prosecution. It was an interesting approach on coming to some healing and some understanding. Uh, and uh, Eric talks a lot about uh, this phrase that came out of that, which we've all heard about um, forgiving but not forgetting. 
And it's just an interesting thought process around how we deal with these, not only in Santa Fe, but Albuquerque and in other communities. This one happens to focus on Santa Fe because he's actually created a proposal for the city of Santa Fe if they wanted to do something like there and create a commission to look not only at this particular issue, but other issues in the coming years. And uh, he also wrote a letter to the editor you can find on this issue. So it's a really fascinating listen. He's got a world of experience in this area. Interested to hear what you think. You can reach out to us on Facebook uh, or our our group, Focus on New Mexico, our Facebook group. If you're not a member, sign up to do that today. Let us know what you think about the idea. It's a really interesting one, and we'd love to hear your comments, and maybe we'll follow up on that as well. But before we go this week, head back to the line panel. Some good news in the midst of all the COVID this past week or two. Uh, news that Netflix making an even bigger commitment to the state of New Mexico. Another billion dollars to expand out uh, their studios there in Mesa del Sol. And uh, that obviously comes with some additional state incentives. So they'll talk about that as well. Also news that Albuquerque is on a a list of potential sites for the new U.S. Space Force, uh, which makes a lot of sense given Kirtland Air Force Base, Sandia Labs, Los Alamos Labs. uh, And so there's a lot of excitement brewing around that possibility. Um, So we'll talk about that as well. It also feeds into what we talked about earlier in terms of New Mexico and our military history. So many folks have military jobs. It's so much a part of our economy. But then you have situations like we're addressing in groundwater war where there is contamination, and that goes back to uranium mining, to, of course, the Trinity site. And so it's awful complicated here in New Mexico. We dive into that a little bit as well, and that's something we'll be talking about for years to come here. But right now, let's shoot it over to back to Gene Grant in the line panel. Encouraging economic news. That's fun to say. Check this out. Netflix, Netflix plans an even bigger investment in New Mexico, $1 billion over a decade with the promise of thousands of new jobs at the expanded Albuquerque Studios at Mesa del Sol. The city is also a finalist for the U.S. Military Space Command, and a new training unit for the Air Force is moving to Kirtland. Tom, is, let's start with Netflix. Big news. What, what's your sense of the Netflix deal and, and how it positions us for the future? Well, you know, the Netflix deal it was huge when it was announced, uh, you know, several years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it made waves throughout the throughout the United States in the industry. And uh, then uh, the head of uh, the Film Commission and uh, Economic Development was Alicia Keys. And uh, now she's the Secretary of Economic Development. And there's a lot of uh, momentum there in the film industry as a result. So I, mm-hmm. it is, uh, it is a, uh, a really fantastic move for New Mexico. I know the film industry gets knocked quite a bit as far as, uh, as, far as incentives go. But you know what? They bring the money. Mm-hmm. And uh, Just you know, let, me ask, let me ask you real quick, though. Um, state and city giving up a lot of money, closing funds, floating industrial revenue bonds. Is it worth the investment? I'm curious your take on that. I, I would say so. And, you know, okay. by means of disclosure, we do some work in the economic development arena. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so they are getting a lot of incentives uh, through, uh, you know, and I, I don't know all the specifics of them, but consider this, that over the last two years, um, New Mexico has seen uh, 30 different deals 
generate $1.2 billion worth of private investment. Hmm. Now, how do you get beyond, you know, I don't know what type of incentives there are, but I can tell you it's not more than a billion. Right. <laughs> and that's a lot of real cash that's been coming into the state as a result of, uh, you know, economic development efforts here. Good point there. Dave, uh, let me go to that, what I mentioned, the U.S. Space Command. I'm particularly excited about this. I'm, I'm looking right. to talk with uh, Sherman McCorkle here in the next week or so about this and the plans to kind of get Albuquerque seated here. When you think about right. Kirtland, White Sands, AFRL, Air Force Research, uh, Research right. we right. it feels like we're the perfect fit. Does it? Am I misreading this? No, I think, I, no, absolutely. I think we're the perfect fit because mm -hmm. what all of these things share in common is you have a workforce that, that you know, needs to be, um, you know, versed in space and planes and Air Force technology. We have that. We have had that since the end of World War II. Mm -hmm. I think that it's a brilliant plan to bring these these things in. These are good jobs. They're solid. You know, they're, I mean, maybe we're a bit of a beltway bandit, as they call us, but these are great jobs. But it also, don't forget, New Mexico, we birthed the atom bomb. And, you know, and I think we never shied away from what we were doing here. And, you know, one of the things you can say, I don't know if it's been our congressional delegation, if it's been Democrats or Republicans, but we have had a very long and I think a very fruitful relationship with the federal government. I think that, you know, one of these, the signs is, is that they trust New Mexico with their projects, you know, for whatever reason, they they send them here, we do a good job on them and everyone, and it's, it's great. I mean, it is good, stable jobs. It is good, stable funding. It's great. I mean, I can see the only little thing that I would say about it is I hope that when the politicians and when the people who are bringing these projects look, they keep downtown in mind, you know, can we put something as a, as a, you know, incentive for us to get the revenue bonds or whatever we have to do? Like, let's put some of your back office workers downtown because boy, downtown looks like it's been hit by a neutron bomb. You know, the people are gone and yeah. the buildings are all standing and we need to really encourage some sort of workforce that gets put downtown if that could be part of the deal. Mm-hmm. Sophie, Virgin Galactic, remember those guys? <laughs> Interestingly, they're set to start doing us, um, commercial flights next year, but in addition, they won a NASA contract to test equipment and material on some of the flights. Has their ship come in? Is, is this now the moment? Well, you know, from your lips to God's ears, as they say, um, certainly that has been, uh, that's been a long wait for New Mexico to see the benefits of that program. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, even when it came together, it was a bit of a, no pun intended, but maybe a bit of a moonshot. Um, so I, I think that we are right to be cautious. Let's not break out the bubbly yet, mm -hmm. but, um, but, it's not a it's not a quick business, right? We it's good That's to right. see some progress here. That's right. Hey, Tom. Interestingly, uh, talking about this space stuff with uh, with Dave, I forgot to mention Orion, um, Orion Center campus plan near Cortland Air Force Base. This is interesting. Could house a thousand jobs when opened, expanded to as many as twenty five hundred. The campus would include a two million square foot manufacturing center, eight story office building, and lab building an extended stay hotel and a whole lot of other developments as well. That's interesting. What, what's, your, what's your sense of that one? 
Oh yeah, yeah, and it takes up the you know what used to be the uh, a portion of a runway of uh, the old Albu of the Albuquerque Sunport. That's right. So mm -hmm. you know it's using space that's available. I think the Sunport Business Park uh, approach is smart, uh, and that type of development can really uh, complement what's already there. Mm -hmm. And what is there includes you know Kirtland Air Force Base. You have the Air Force Research Laboratory. Uh, and, you know, those are within close proximity of where the Orion uh, operation is is being proposed. So mm -hmm. you have a lot of these key pieces that are really falling into place with respect to the space command. Uh, to Dave's point earlier when he was talking about, you know, New Mexico being, you know, where the uh, atom bomb was created. New Mexico has had also a number of other firsts, including, you know, the nicotine patch was developed uh, through New Mexico Tech. You also had Microsoft had their very first days here before uh, Bill Gates got called home by dad. But, uh, you know, so you have a lot of technology, a lot of firsts in the state. You also have more research that's available through the state universities uh, than any other part in the Western United States. I mean, it's the type of investment that you would typically see that's only reserved for uh, those uh, research universities in the Northeast United States. So mm -hmm. New Mexico has a lot of positive things that are going for it. Uh, and uh, But, you know, the things that need to change in order for it to keep moving forward, the education system, the workforce, uh, those are the two Achilles heels right now for economic development. Right. You know, Sophie, when you think about it, it's interesting, you can see the trend. It's all about looking up in the sky. It's about space <laughs> at this point. It's very interesting. But these are very good paying jobs. I mean, it just as a, as a counter, Amazon is building a fulfillment center on the west side. It's going to have a thousand full-time employees. That's no small thing. It's not quite the mm -hmm. same, but th my point is you have to be, have jobs available for everyone up and down the ladder, so to speak, from the very educated down yeah. to less so. Yeah, is, is that what gives a little enough. bit of comfort here? Mm -hmm. I, well, I think that your point is right on. You know, there was a period where it seemed like all we were really able to uh, recruit here was call centers and um, those, you know, come and go. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, when we see an investment in infrastructure, when we see an investment in workforce, all of that is, is helpful. Um, and it helps to, bu to build political support for these ideas. Uh -huh. I mean, the, the, when you look at, again, at the film industry, the film and television industry here, um, the folks who started out saying, you know, I don't necessarily have the training yet, but I want to get it and I want to get involved in that industry are now seasoned professionals who are able to advocate, advocate for their industry in New Mexico. And, and that progression has been really important for that industry. Um, certainly, governor, government workers have been able to advocate through, you know, Mm -hmm. through our governor and things like that. You know, we, we see those things, but um, I think back to the number of times, Gene, you and I, and, and I think Tom have talked about um, the importance of diversification. Mm -hmm. And we've always, you know, we've said, yes, we need to diversify beyond oil and gas. We need to diversify beyond, um, beyond government work. And the state is doing that. Mm -hmm. And as those industries become entrenched, it's important that we not then neglect the industries, you know, we, we want to keep the, the three-legged stool balanced, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so pro programs like this help to show that our, um, that our community is, is still able to compete in these very important areas. You know, Dave, it's interesting. Deals go on, don't they? No matter what's going on in the world, global right. pandemics, I mean, the yes. money still wants somewhere to right. go. So, you know. You know the, the other thing that I think that we should do is sort of a, a bigger, bigger picture look at all of this. One of the people that I know who was um, 
you know, tangentially involved in the, the Netflix thing said, one of the big appeals of bringing Netflix to New Mexico on such a large scale is that the people who work in the movie industry beyond the bottom line or the bottom line workers, which means they don't have profit participation, they can afford to buy housing. They can afford to have a good house in New Mexico, which that is no small thing. I mean, I yep. think that's one of the great things about Albuquerque, but we should expand that. We should include the rural areas too, you know, um, you know, when you look at where they are out there at Casa del Sol, it's a quick hop to get over to Estancia and down to Las Lunas. And we should make sure, you know, we've got Facebook, we've got Google, we've got Netflix. All of those people need good housing and Albuquerque and Bernalillo County should share and encourage people to go to the rural areas because we cannot go on with this rural urban divide. Mm, good point you know, Gene, please don't. If I could just add in, you know, there are two items that really provide that local control for economic development. One is LIDA. Uh, the other is JTIP, and both are funded through the legislature, and they're both so critical to really incentivizing and providing a reason for business uh, to locate in New Mexico. Yes. And so, you know, to Sophie's point, as far as really diversifying the economy, uh, you know, from away from oil and gas, you really need, you know, that's one of the ways you can do that is with JTIP and LIDA funds and providing the incentives to uh, companies to be here, but not giving away the bank, just saying, hey, we're glad that you're here. Here's, uh, here's how we can help uh, with your workforce. Uh, and so th those are some of the positive things that uh, we're doing, I think, in New Mexico mm -hmm. to really see that move away from oil and gas. Momentum is an interesting thing, isn't it? It really is. That'll do it for The Line this week. We appreciate all you guys, all your panelists keeping abreast of the news this week. It's been fast moving. Be sure to follow us on YouTube to catch all the extra content. We can't fit in the show. There's a lot of it. All right, we hope you have a terrific weekend. You stay safe, you stay healthy, stay masked. We need us all to buckle down here and get us through these difficult winter months when it comes to the COVID surge. Our hospitals are just maxing out, overwhelmed. We need to do all we can for them. But before we go, we always want to leave with a few thoughts from Gene Grant on the week that was. This week, he's looking again at uh, shopping local, which is extra important this year because of the restrictions on business in terms of COVID-19. And hey, if you have any ideas, it's something else we want to we want to talk about on the show, on Facebook Live. What are the innovative things you're finding that businesses are doing? Or if you're a business owner, we want to hear from you as well uh, to try to make up for the restrictions that are in place. The capacity in, in your store may be compromised. You may be only limited to curbside or online, which we know is another burden for a lot of businesses. But we know there's an innovative and entrepreneurial spirit out there in New Mexico. We want to hear what uh, what kind of things people are coming up with to try to to help themselves out during this difficult time. Some creative thought processes to bring in those dollars. Of course, get out there and support those local businesses, but also reach out to us. Let us know what you're seeing. We'd love to hear that. It's something we're super interested in here. But with that... We'll wish you a great week. We'll be back again next week here on New Mexico in Focus. As you heard in our first segment, Governor Lujan Grisham had toggled the public orders. And we are all now working and living under the same guidelines. It also means we can get after some desperately needed shopping for the holidays. Now, after the season of home delivery, and look, it's easy to fall into the charms of tablet convenience connected to a large online retailer. It's going to take a bit more work, but work we must for our locally owned retailers. 
There's a Facebook meme getting a lot of deserved traction that gets right to the heart of it. It states, where you spend your holiday dollars between November 27th and December 31st, 2020, will determine whether you have a Main Street in 2021. The meme actually finishes with, it's that simple, shop local. Hey, be it Central or Coors, Paseo del Pueblo in Taos or California Street in Socorro, online or in person, whatever Main Street means to you, it's that simple. Shop local.